I'm Sonia Stott. I'm Drew Grantham. I'm Cheryl Ma. And you're listening to CNI Radio. The CNI is the University of California's Carbon Neutrality Initiative, which aims to reach carbon neutrality from the UC's direct emissions by 2025 and carbon neutrality from indirect emissions controlled by the UC by 2030. As the UCLA CNI ambassadors, we're dedicated to keeping you updated on all things CNI, analyzing current environmental legislation and exploring different careers and perspectives in the world of sustainability. Stay with us. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of CNI Radio. This week we have a conversation between Drew Grantham and Sonia Stott, who are two of our CNI ambassadors, about different environmental misconceptions um, in our series that we are calling Sustainability. And then we also have an interview um, between Sonia Stott and Nancy Skinner, who is a ca- member of the California State Senate um, and serves on the Budget Committee, the Public Safety Committee, the Environmental Quality Committee, the Housing Committee, the Transportation Committee, um, and they talk about Nancy's work in California government. So stay tuned. So just starting off with um, environmental misconception number one is sustainability is just about the environment. Can you tell me why this is a misconception? Yeah, definitely. So I think that misconception specifically has definitely come about just because I think environmentalists use the word sustainability so often and it's just like kind of a part of the, of like the, the vernacular or whatever or the, or the common terms that people use in environmentalism. Um, but what's important to know is like the actual definition of sustainable development is like development that meets the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. So while that has a lot to do with the environment and it is like something super important about the environment, it really does connect to really like every other part of society too. Like using the correct amount of resources in the environment is going to affect the economy and it's going to affect like just about everything that we do. So sustainability isn't just saving the environment. It's really about creating like a government that's going to be sustainable for years to come, an economy that's going to work for years to come, creating like equi- equitability and and how we use those and spread about those resources. So sustainability is just like a really broad and and kind of powerful term really that encompasses all of those things. Yeah. Um all right, number 2, sustainability um and especially in and through the environmental lens is too expensive. Yeah. So I think that's a pretty common misconception. Like it's just thought like, Oh, if I'm going to, if I want to buy more environmentally friendly products, or if I want to buy something that's like sustainably sourced or something like that, then it's just going to have to be more expensive and it's going to have to kind of like be a lifestyle change almost. Like I won't be able to, to live the same way I am right now if I want to be sustainable as well. Um, so I think that really is just a misconception because a lot of people see just the upfront costs because obviously if you already have all incandescent bulbs in your house, then switching to all led bulbs is going to be, you're going to have to pay some money up front. But 
it really is just more of a, a short run kind of extra cost because in the long run, then you're going to be saving the energy bills. And I mean, generally LEDs are, are better built anyway. They're, they're better light bulbs. So they'll just last you longer. Um, and the same thing with something like buying a, a more environmentally friendly car, like, yeah, it will be expensive. And for a lot of people, it's not, they're not in a position where they can make all these changes right away. So I think it's important to think about changing sustainability things like when you can. So say your, your car goes out finally, maybe when you're looking to buy a new car, you try to find something with, with better gas mileage, because not only is it more sustainable, but it'll save you money as well. Definitely. And I think also the misconception about sustainability being too expensive also ties into this idea of conscious consumerism and how we we can look at ways that the government can incentivize and sub- subsidize more sustainable options in ways that doesn't have all of the financial impact fall on the consumer, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and another thing I wanted to bring up about it is I think really a lot of the responsibility falls on kind of bigger companies and and the people who are producing a lot of the the emissions in the first place, um, they're in already a much better position to be to be kind of the front runners in that because they have such they can take out big loans and they can kind of plan really far into the future and say we'll make these switches now because we know maybe twenty years from now like putting solar panels on a roof is going to be saving us a lot of energy and a lot of money in that way. So they they are the ones who have the money to make, be making those kind of changes. Uh, would you also consider the misconception of sustainability being too expensive? Um, doesn't that also tie into the idea or the worry that switching to more environmentally friendly ways of life will destroy the um, the jobs of people that work in like coal mining or in lumber or other industries that rely on practices that are no longer considered sustainable. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think in general, yeah, there's a lot of worry from people that like, oh, environmentalists, like somebody goes and ties themselves in a tree and, and the lumber company can't, can't cut down the forest anymore because these environmental groups are, are keeping them. And then people are afraid, oh, but what about, what about the lumberjack or what about the people working in, the, in those firms who are, who are now going to not have any work? So I think this kind of ties into sustainability being more than just about the environment as well. Just how it's not just about protecting the environment. It's about creating a whole system and a whole society that's going to be sustainable. So when we talk about we want to cut down less trees, we want to mine less coal, we also need to be talking about the systems that need to be in place for those people who are going to lose their jobs in those in those fields. But what's so great about kind of this new, new innovative and creative place of sustainability and creating alternative energies and, and al- alternative products that are more sustainable is those are going to create jobs too. So I've, I've heard talks before about people um, kind of environmentalists working with like labor unions in those in those kind of instances to say, Hey, let's find out a way where if these people are getting laid off here, let's give them a job in this in this solar plant or let's give them a job somewhere else that's going to be that's going to need people to work there because it's a new industry, but also it'll just be a place for those people to go once they lose their jobs.
Definitely. And so it's not necessarily about losing their jobs, but it's about prioritizing the philosophy of sustainability to provide job transition training so people in one sector that is worth reducing will still have opportunities in a more sustainable and environmental oriented sector. Okay, number three, human population is growing exponentially and it's ruining the, the, it's ruining the planet. Yeah, yeah. So this is um, a misconception that I actually had for a long time. Um, <laughs> kind of when I, when I first learned about it and learned about um, like developing countries are they're going through kind of these big population booms right now because they're, they're starting to go into that phase of, of development. Um, but the reality of it is the rate of population growth has actually been declining in the last five decades or so. It, it's, we're still growing overall, but the, the rate at which we're growing is actually declining. So a lot of people kind of want to put the blame or they want to make it important that we, we figure out what to do with these developing countries as their emissions start to increase. But what the real problem is going to be within the next century of, of we're going to peak in, the, in our population. So the real problem is going to be how do we get the per capita emissions and how, how do we get first world countries who have already been in, emitting more than the other countries for so long, how do we get them to start emitting less? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think also there's, let me find it really quick. There's this really good um, top mention of the myth of overpopulation that the Sierra Club talks about and how it's not about the um the amount of people but the amount that they consume and a lot of um eco-fascist ideology that we talked about in a prior episode relies on this idea that um poor people or refugees or immigrants are more um at fault for the climate crisis because they can't necessarily afford sustainable or environmentally friendly alternatives when reality that's just based in um sort of like hatred essentially and doesn't uh, it it puts too much blame on people that one are not consuming enough and fails to acknowledge that it's more about consumption than it is the amount of people yeah there's there's just we can't put environmentalism ahead of of people's lives (laughs) i think that's really the point i'm trying to make um we can't say you can't use these resources because they're bad for the earth when developed countries have, have been using those. That's the reason we got to the point we're at is because we overutilize those resources and we, and we use too much. But if we really want to, yeah, start making a change, it, it's about decreasing kind of our own consumption and, and consumer, consumer habits in that way. Yeah, definitely. And I think there we don't need to prioritize one over the other like environmentalism and the progress of all people really goes hand in hand when we <laughs> bring it back to sustainability and all all um all aspects of our lives you know like it's worth um and i think this is one thing that kind of comes out of the paris climate agreement and um other global summits is that it's worth um, doing what you can 
for your own country, but trying to find ways to support countries that may not have um, the same resources that more wealthy countries have. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, number four, people who don't think we should act strongly to stop climate change are just ill-informed or ignorant. Um, What do you have to say about that misconception? Yeah, yeah, I think pretty much anyone who has who has any interest in environmentalism or or anything like has talked about climate change with somebody who doesn't believe it has probably fallen into this misconception at some point. It's really easy when you have all the information that that you do, like when you if you've taken a class on it or or you've done your own research into it. It's so hard to see understand why somebody else might not have that information and and it seems so obvious <laughs> to some degree that yeah sometimes when you're when you're arguing with somebody or you're talking with somebody who who just doesn't believe the same way it seems like they're just oh this person is just totally ignorant and they're they're living under a rock but i think what's really important to to know is that just everybody comes from a different background like sometimes people just don't have access to the same information and also that sometimes it's just it's hard to change how you think when you when you've looked at the world one way for so long i mean somebody coming up to you and telling you that climate change is real if you've not believed it your whole life or never even heard of it then you're it's going to take a little bit to understand it so if you really want to like try to make a change in how somebody's thinking you really can't come at it like this is a stupid person who i just need to educate you, you have to kind of start to see their worldview and understand why they think that way or what, what has caused them or what has led them to those beliefs. And, and then, yeah, go from there and, and, try to, and try to work within that. Yeah, definitely. It takes a lot of compassion to try to change someone's worldview in a way that isn't patronizing or <laughs> uh, in, in, its, in, in its own way equally as ignorant. Um, and I think a lot of the... Th- times in um, our work in environmentalism, we hear that telling stories is one of the most powerful ways to change someone's mindset. So I think that's important to keep in mind. And then also, in the United States, there's always this rhetoric that it's either one or the the other. It's like uh, prioritizing environmentalism or prioritizing job security, prioritizing environmentalism or prioritizing economic mobility, when in reality those two things can go hand in hand. And that's something important that we need to acknowledge too when speaking with people who are reluctant to prioritize environmentalism when they think it will jeopardize um, their economic mobility. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. And yeah, just, I mean, the political climate in the U.S. especially and the, and the polarization that has kind of occurred, like somehow in the midst of it, environmentalism became like this, this kind of tipping issue. Like you're either on one side or the other, which just doesn't make sense because it, it needs to be something that everybody is concerned about. And, and it's something that affects every part of your life, even if you live nowhere near the <laughs> any nature or, or anything like that. It's it's just such a big world problem that we can't we can't keep living on on two sides of it. 
Okay, well, that is a perfect segue into uh, misconception number five, uh, that the environment and the earth are beyond repair and that we're all doomed. Yeah, yeah, I think, um, again, this is something that I feel a lot of people kind of in environmentalism kind of have thought about at some point, and it can be really scary and, and really daunting. Um, and it's it's hard to kind of toe the line at some points because at the end of the day, there is urgency to the issues that we have, and there, and there really is, we need to act now. But what what most people kind of forget about is that the earth really is like a resilient place and it existed for long before humans were here and it'll exist long after whatever (laughs) probably long after we're gone um but what we're really trying to do with environmentalism and, and sustainability in general is make the earth a place that humans can live and can prosper for generations to come. Like we're not going to, we're trying to keep it in a place that it's not going to ruin the ecosystems we have today for, for the next generation or the people coming after us. And even within this misconception, it is important to acknowledge that while yes, urgency is important don't let that urgency turn into <laughs> climate nihilism or just like this uh, feeling that they're, the the problem is too big and that leads to just people giving up and shutting down and that is just the least productive thing that environmentalists can do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I feel like that's that's a very common excuse I've heard. Like if you if you try to talk to somebody about oh yeah, I believe in, I, I know climate change is happening. I understand that. But like, what can I do? Like there, <laughs> what can one person do to change that? And I think it's definitely important to keep in mind that your decisions really do make a difference. Maybe not like you not buying one product is going to make a company change their, their whole, <laughs> their whole um, business plan. But just you living a certain way is going to affect the people around you in your circle. And that can spread to the people in their circle and just continuing to try to educate the people around you and, and just learn as much as you can about how to live the best way that you can is important. Yeah. It takes more than just your individual. I, it, it's, it includes your political decisions, your decisions regarding activism, your decisions regarding the like communities you want to raise up like it it it's not just what you buy or what you refuse to buy i think that is a really problematic mindset that leads to a lot of eco nihilism yeah yeah definitely thank you so much drew and sonia for that wonderful conversation about different environmental misconceptions and ways that we can reframe environmentalism and sustainability in a more equitable way um, and based on the actual definition of sustainability. Next is our interview with Sonia and Nancy Skinner, who once again is a member of the California State Senate. Um, They talk a little bit about her work and specifically related to environmental policy. So yeah, stay tuned for that one. Um, Just uh, starting off, would you give your name, position, the committees you currently serve on, and um, how many years you've been in public policy. Um, My name is Nancy Skinner. I am a state senator in California. 
Um, I chair the State Senate's Budget Committee. I also serve on the Public Safety Committee, the Environmental Quality Committee, Transportation Committee, Housing Committee. What did I say? Housing, Trans, Public Safety, Budget, EQ. Yep, those are five. And I have been in the State Senate since 2016. Previously, I was in the State Assembly for six years. And prior to that, I was elected to, I was in, I served in the elected role at the East Bay Regional Park District for two and a half years and on the Berkeley City Council for eight years. But I've been involved in public policy for more like uh, 40 years. And then, um, can you tell me about how you became interested in public policy and social justice, specifically through an environmental lens? I know you do a lot more than just environmental work, but... <laughs> well, when I was in high school, it was the, the, the Earth Day started. So uh, 1970 was the very first Earth Day. And it caught a lot of our attention. And the, the issues around how pesticides had um, decimated bird populations, there were communities where cancer rates were up and they were starting to correlate that directly to uh, different chemicals, chemicals that were in, in the drinking water of that community. And there was the very famous book by Rachel Carson, Silent Spring. Now, even though Silent Spring had come out in the 60s, it was very much promoted in uh, right around that Earth Day time, 1970. So I think during high school, I started to become very aware of environmental issues. And when I went to college, I didn't initially think that I would study environmental issues. I was interested in other things, but eventually within my, by my second year, I pretty much landed in a program called Conservation of Natural Resources, and which was an environmental science program, and I got my degree there. And in that department, the um, professors were very politically active, and so they encouraged us as students to take the knowledge that we were gaining as students around environmental issues and be active around that. Not just learn it, but actually try to make change. And then um, uh, can you talk more about how that affected the work that you started doing once you graduated college or even when you were on the city council as a student? Yeah, so there were a lot of issues that um, our professors encouraged us to be involved in. And they were <clears throat> mostly, they were local issues. So, you know, oftentimes we think about global environmental problems. But in this case, our professors would connect a global environmental problem to something local and encourage us to get active. So in Berkeley at that time, when I was an undergrad, recycling was very popular. But all of a sudden, the city council decided that it was going to make recycling illegal, believe it or not. And the reason was because the city of Berkeley owned a landfill and that landfill was going to close and they were trying to figure out what they were going to do instead with all the garbage and they uh, somebody came forward and gave them a proposal to build a garbage incinerator that means burn up your garbage and they were going to put that garbage incinerator on the Berkeley waterfront where we now have that beautiful park 
Cesar Chavez Park, gorgeous waterfront park. Imagine if that instead was a large industrial garbage incinerator. But the city council was sold on this idea because, now I said, um, I started college in 19, in the mid-70s, and around 1979, you had a couple of big things happen. Number one, you had the Three Mile Island nuclear incident, where it was a nuclear power plant that leaked nuclear material and uh, caused radioactivity. It, it really, it harmed a lot of people. And of course, the radioactivity also was put into the atmosphere, so it had the potential of spreading and harming like everybody. Um, so a lot of us were like, nuclear power is no good. Um, then the other thing that was happening at the same time, Carter was the president and we were having a oil crisis because the uh, Arab oil producing states were not sending the oil to, to the United States. So all of a sudden, everybody was thinking about energy. What, how do we produce energy? So the, this company that had the idea for the garbage incinerator told the city of Berkeley, oh, you'll be so innovative. You'll take your garbage, what everybody doesn't want, and you'll burn it up and make electricity. And you won't have to rely on nuclear and you won't have to rely on fossil fuels. So of course, the Berkeley City Council thought, what a great idea. Now, that sounds, the way I described it, like maybe that's a really good environmental thing. But in fact, it is not. And the reason, the first thing is that that garbage incinerator needed all the garbage, including the recyclables, or it wasn't going to work well. It wasn't going to be cost effective. And it is far more efficient. If you just understand uh, physics and entropy, it is much more efficient to reuse a material or to remanufacture a material than it is to burn it up and to try to capture its energy from that. You lose much, from entropy, you lose much more of that energy. Um, additionally, when you burn things up, one of the byproducts is a chemical called dioxin. Well, not if you burn every, anything, but when you burn many things that you and I throw away. So if you burn plastics, if you burn, there's a whole variety of things that people commonly throw away that if you incinerate those, then this highly, highly carcinogenic chemical dioxin is produced and it is emitted out of the smokestack and can then increase cancer rates. So us students, number one, we were appalled of the idea that Berkeley would try to make recycling illegal. And secondarily, we're like, wait a minute, you can't poison us with dioxin. And then thirdly, we thought we don't want to have to look down at the waterfront and see a big smokestack. We want to see, uh, you know, we want access to the bay. So we started organizing. We weren't able to change the city council's mind. We organized for about two years. We couldn't get anywhere. So we did uh, time honored. We decided to put an initiative on the ballot. So we wrote an initiative to ban garbage incinerating in Berkeley and we collected signatures. It got on the ballot and it passed overwhelmingly. So then after that, so I've been very involved in all these things, then people said, oh, Nancy, you should run for the Berkeley City Council. And it, there was a tradition always for a student to run. A student had never been elected to the Berkeley City Council, but there was a tradition because a lot of students live in Berkeley. And if there was a student who was running, then more students would vote. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll run. But I didn't really think that I would win because no student had ever won. But, and I didn't win the first time I ran, but I won the second time.
Lovely. Um, can you tell me more about SB 18 and SB 27, the two bills that you introduced to the 2021 legislative session? Okay, SB 18, I'm going to have to look this one up because I don't always remember my bill numbers. Now, remember, I've been in the legislature for going on now uh, 14 or so years. Let's see, no, 6, 5, 11 years. And I've carried a lot of bills. So, and they, you can have a bill that's, that has the same number in effect, right? So that's why I don't always remember the bill numbers, but I always remember the content of the bills. So my bill SB 18 is about hydrogen. Now, hydrogen is another one of these tricky subjects. So the, what I just described before about garbage incineration to create electricity sounded on the surface of it like this is a good thing. Now, hydrogen is the most abundant element in the universe and it has the capacity, it has a great energy potential. However, for us to utilize hydrogen, we have to split it out of water. And to, to get it out of water, we, to pull out, you know, H2O, to pull it out from the oxygen in the water is a very energy intensive process. And if you're using fossil fuels to do that, then your the net product is got high carbon. It isn't hydrogen in and of itself, no carbon, zero carbon. But if you use fossil fuels to extract your hydrogen, then it's high carbon. So we've had a, a, about, say, 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago in California, there was a push for hydrogen. But it was still very expensive and impractical to produce hydrogen without fossil fuels. Now, because we have so much solar energy and wind energy and other renewable energy, we have the capacity to use the excess production when our solar panels are working and we're producing electricity. We have the capacity to use that excess production and power the extraction of hydrogen. So we're using a renewable a non-carbon energy source to extract hydrogen, which then in and of itself is a no carbon energy source. So my bill, SB 18, is to promote the use of green hydrogen and to get the California regulatory agencies that make all the rules around like how we power our vehicles, how we power trucks, how we make electricity, how we store electricity. So those entities are our Energy Commission, our California Public Utilities Commission, and our California Air Resources Board. So my bill basically says, hey, um, regulatory agencies, there's a real opportunity for green hydrogen. That means zero carbon hydrogen. Let's build into our planning documents and our goals. Let's build in the use of it so we can send signals to the private sector to invest in this, so we can send signals to researchers to develop you know, research and development, and also to uh, private sector to start utilizing it. So that's the purpose of that bill. And what was the other number you asked me about? The other number I asked you about is SB 27, which is carbon, oh God. Thank you for saying that for me. So, you know, these words, that look, it's appropriate to use um, the the right terms, but we can also think of carbon sequestration, not just think of it, 
sequestration is comparable to storage. Um, and I think most of us understand the carbon cycle. If we've taken, you know, elementary biology, we know that the uh, that trees uh, take sunlight, and through um, you through photosynthesis, they convert the solar into the energy that they need, and they so we breathe in air, and we need the oxygen of it, and we breathe out carbon dioxide. Trees need the carbon dioxide, so they hold the carbon dioxide. That's part of the photosynthetic process. So they are, and I'm using trees as an example, but all plants, all plants and trees are, in effect, sequesters or storers of carbon. Now, the other entities that have that capability are the plankton, phytoplankton and zooplankton in our oceans, and soils. Now, we think of soils, we look at it, that's dirt. But dirt is really, healthy dirt is alive. It is alive. And it is breaking, it is the, it's the, um, you know, when leaves fall, when things, it is the breaking down of materials. And the thing that breaks it down is all these microorganisms. Well, those microorganisms are, they function the way trees do, the way plants do, and they hold carbon. So a healthy soil can hold an enormous amount of carbon. And right now, obviously, the climate crisis is phenomenally serious, and we've got a short window of time to, to reverse this trend of so much carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And, we, I mean, we really have a very short time. So we need to use every tool possible and every possible you know, way that we can either grab carbon out of the air or release less. And making sure that our soils are healthy and using other, the other thing is any what we call working lands, different agricultural processes or range lands, those are grasslands that like cattle feed on and such. If we manage them a certain way, they will store way more carbon. They have the capacity to just phenomenal storage of carbon, in addition to obviously maintaining our forests and, uh, you know, our forests for sure. Anyway, so the purpose of my bill is to encourage those same regulatory agencies that I talked about with my hydrogen bill and get them to create a registry. So if I'm a private sector company and I and you hear about companies all the time declaring, wow, we're going to go zero carbon. We pledge, whoa, zero carbon. But, but many times they then, they don't so, they, they're looking to purchase or fund activities that they can then claim credit for. And so if, and they could be, we don't want them to do greenwashing. We don't want them to, you know, buy some stuff that isn't real and say, see, I'm zero carbon now. And the thing about a carbon sequestration registry in California that is verified, if those private sector companies then want to invest in some healthy soils or in some rangeland, and, and then the practice really does store carbon, then that's a good thing. So that's the purpose of that bill. And then what environmental legislation were you most proud of authoring, supporting, and seeing passed uh, during your time in either the Assembly or the Senate? Um, I, I actually have been very fortunate to both support a lot and personally author some very, very um, important bills. Obviously, one of the most important, there were two of them, 
the first one was our um, when California set a goal to produce 20% of its electricity from renewable sources. So now our goal is 100%. But when we adopted our 20% bill, which was in 20, 2010, just 11 years ago, that was considered unheard of. And it was a huge fight. And then we very quickly, within a few years after that, adopted a 50% goal, meaning that we would only produce electricity from renewable sources, 50%. Now we have a 100% 100 goal. So it's interesting how quickly, um, you know, sometimes change is very slow, but here in 11 years, we went from no goal to a 20% goal and now to 100%. Um, but now, so you have a goal, I'm going to produce my electricity from renewable sources. What are your renewable sources? They're wind, they're solar, they're geothermal. Hopefully we'll start using what they call offshore wind, so tidal power. But when you think about the two main ones, wind and solar, they don't run 24-7. So you think about if I put coal in a power plant or I put natural gas, I can burn it, burn the coal or burn the natural gas 24 hours a day. So I can produce electricity 24 hours a day. But the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day. The wind doesn't blow 24 hours a day. So if we're trying to produce 100% of our electricity from those sources, how are we going to do it? So one of the things you need when you want to rely on electricity from renewable sources is you need to be able to store it. So when the sun is producing more electricity than you need, you need to be able to capture it. The same way the soil is capturing the carbon, you need to capture that solar energy. So I carried a bill in 20, I think it was 2010. Might have been 2011, but I think it was 2010. And that bill was an energy storage bill. It was a game changer. It was the first piece of law in the country and definitely in California, that said, all right, utilities, you utilities that produce and sell electricity, you have to include in your electricity planning and in your purchase of electricity, you have to include purchasing storage. So, I mean, to them, that was unheard of. You only purchased or produced new electricity. You didn't, I mean, but if we didn't have a goal for storage, we were going to have to rely on still a fossil fuel when the sun wasn't shining or the wind wasn't blowing. And now that energy storage, we since that bill passed, California is now the world leader in energy storage, and energy storage has been taken up by almost every state in the country and all over the world. Wow, that makes me feel so optimistic. <laughs> well, it's a great thing. And so how? what are the ways we store? So when the sun is shining more and we got this uh we could have we can produce more electricity we use batteries we use what's called fuel cells and hydrogen we produce hydrogen and hydrogen itself you can store it it can sit in a tank until you then need to use it so it's just another this is why i've gotten obsessed with hydrogen because after doing the energy storage i didn't just want to rely on batteries because batteries still can only operate for so many hours they don't have a long duration and you want like what if you have three days of uh, three cloudy dark days and you're not producing solar you want three days of storage and hydrogen is one of the primary ways you could actually achieve like three days of storage um, and then what is 
in your opinion, the most challenging part of producing and passing meaningful legislation? The <clears throat> most challenging part is when a, a moneyed interest uh, decides that the bill, the legislation that you're carrying, somehow interferes with their business plan or they decide it might affect their profits. And so they then try to, uh, they organize against your bill. And sometimes they're straightforward, they're upfront, and they say, you know, we don't like this. Just gonna, we don't want to change our business practice. But other times they lie. And they basically say, oh, energy storage is impractical. There is no such, you know, it's not, there's no technologies available. This is impossible for us to achieve. You know, they'll say things like that. They'll say, well, it depends on the, you know, they'll give various reasons to try to kill your bill. So you have to be very clever and uh, talk to your colleagues to, to encourage them to vote and counter the arguments. And then you have to try to get other um, interest groups or, you know, just uh, lots more support from different sources to try to put your bill through the finish line. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and then what do you think are the most important next steps? You kind of already brushed on this with the 100% renewable electricity, but what do you think are the most important next steps California needs to take in the fight against climate change? Well, our renewable electricity is great, and we're, you know, we're miles ahead of other folks in that one. But what's our biggest source of emissions? You know, people don't often think about this. It's vehicles, trucks, cars, every type of vehicle, even boats. I mean, every, trains, you name it. They're almost entirely still powered by fossil fuels. And they give off a lot of carbon. So about... Uh, it's something like 45 or 47 percent of the carbon emissions in the state are from all those classification of vehicles. And unless we convert vehicles to either electric or hydrogen or, you know, get them off diesel, think, just get them off of fossil fuels, we are not going to make a dent in our in the climate crisis. So that's the biggest challenge right now. And that's why you see that there's been um, there's a lot of rebates to encourage people to purchase electric vehicles. And not only that, now California has, the governor has announced that the, we won't allow the sale of new fossil fuel vehicles beginning as of, I forget what year he said it. I don't know if he said it as 2030 or 2035, but they will not be sold here. Um, but in the meantime... We, uh, we have to try to accelerate that and get people off of using vehicles that are powered by fossil fuels. And then what advice would you give to young people interested in running for public office or interested in um, backing uh, public policy that affects um, environmental justice, environmental health, and... Um, that promotes renewable energy as well? Well, there's so many ways people can really be, uh, be effective change agents in this area. So if, there's, if their interest is particularly in the public policy arena, developing it, promoting it, implementing it, then government is a good place to be. And when I say 
the government, it doesn't have to just be the elected member. All, so when we talked about my bills, I mentioned all these agencies. So when I do a good law, I still rely on these state agencies to implement them. And if the people who work there are not dedicated to, to the same goals, they're not going to be implemented well. But these agencies have huge responsibility, like our Air Resources Board has the responsibility to meet California's climate protection goals, all the ones we've adopted. And they develop all the rules and regulations for that. So working in various agencies, either in state government or federal government, or even cities is really good way to be a change agent. Working for an elected official is another way to be a change agent as well as being the elected official yourself. And also many of our communities have what we call boards and commissions. So before I was ever elected, I served on, on Berkeley's Solid Waste Commission, which was the, the citizen group that advised the city on garbage policy and recycling policy. And um, I also served, I can't remember the other, but there's lots of these commissions, planning commission, various things, what we didn't talk about so far when I talked about transportation is in addition to our vehicles being still primarily fueled by fossil fuels, we drive too far. And why do we drive too far? Because our land use policies are such where we didn't design our cities well and our communities so that we have our housing far away from the store you have to go to or the work you have to go to or the services that you need. And so if everything's far away from each other, then you're driving far. So we need to also be very, very smart about land use. And planning commissions are the ones who define land use. So there's many, many ways to affect, to be a change agent, to, be, to help develop and implement good public policy. Thank you so much, Nancy. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Have fun. Thank you so much, Nancy Skinner. It was an absolute pleasure to listen to your interview and to have you on our show. Um, that is all that we have for our program today. Thank you all so much and have a wonderful day.